0: Amen. If you have your Bibles, we'll turn to our scripture reading for this morning. And um, we're continuing our studies through the New Testament letter of First Peter. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. And just in a few moments, we'll be reading from verses 13 to 17. And it's a very apt letter, the, Peter's first letter, because it's helping us navigate opposition it's helping us when we face suffering and we must face the possibility of suffering and i mean suffering for the sake of the gospel suffering for the sake of the gospel and that theme continues in the passage this morning so i want you to look out for four things in verses 13 to 17 of 1 peter 3 First of all, a reasonable expectation. And you see that in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It isn't a complicated point. It's a reasonable expectation. Secondly, in verses 14 and 15, alongside a reasonable expectation, there is a need for realistic preparation. But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. So the first thing to look out for is a reasonable expectation. The second is a realistic preparation. And then thirdly, in verses 15 to 16, I would suggest that there's a rigorous obligation that rests on us all. Being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, a reasonable expectation, a realistic preparation, and a reasonable obligation. And finally, a rewarding implication, verses 16 and 17. But let us pray before we read God's word together. O oh Lord God, open our hearts, open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your law, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So 1 Peter in verse 13 of chapter 3, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy. An inerrant word. So first of all, this reasonable expectation. I don't know, I'm, I always get in trouble when I say, do you like such and such a TV show? But if there's anyone here who likes the TV comedy Dad's Army, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Dad's Army. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's the Home Guard during the Second World War. And a little bit beyond before my time. Um, there's, there was Captain Mannerin. And Corporal Jones, wonderful characters. Wilson, remember Wilson. But the Home Guard was comprised of retirees, and you know, Manorin was a bank manager and former soldiers and people who were either too old or disqualified from serving in the theatre of combat. And so often, the Home Guard was actually ill-equipped, a motley crew of eccentrics and misfits. A pretty fertile soil for comedy, but my favourite character of all is a rugged, crafty Scotsman, Private James Fraser, and uh, I wish Murray was here because I love him. But um, who, being Scottish, was irretrievably gloomy. I'm not. I'm not stereotyping at all. Um, you know, I've got a family here, Scottish, but as as the ridiculous antics of his unit got worse and worse and worse and worse. He used to punctuate the dialogue with this catchphrase. Remember it? We are doomed. (laughs) And I wish I could say it in a Scottish accent, but we're doomed. And if you look at verse 13, Peter wants to make sure that the sort of pessimism that responds to every challenge with private phrases, exclamation, we are doomed, has no place in the Christian life. See, there is a reasonable expectation that those who see you zealous for good works are not going to respond with anything but gratitude. If you are kind and servant-hearted and you show integrity in your workplace and in your family life, if you are a good neighbor, people typically respond to that with a welcome if you turn on your television, you see disaster after disaster, horror story after horror story. I've reflected before here in the pulpit in the last few weeks that 2020 has been quite the year. We, you know, because of what's happened since, we've completely forgotten about the Australian bushfires, for example. But there's been horror story after horror story, and it's easy to begin to feel that the world is this dreadful dark place, and we have to circle the wagons and retreat from the world and keep it at bay at all costs. We are doomed. And it's an attitude that quickly and easily creeps up on us. But pessimism is not a Christian attitude. Paul, Peter I mean, wants us to face the world with open hearts and a resolve to serve. My friends, now is not the time to pull back from our neighbours, from engagement. Now is the time to press in. His first readers were beginning to face opposition for following Jesus. And it wasn't yet acute. It was just slander and social, and, you know, and, you know, social um, distancing, if you like. A, I can't get, you can think of a better word, but... But there is worse coming for Peter's first readers, history tells us. And Peter wants to equip them in the face of growing opposition, not to withdraw, not to push back, but to remember that we should have a reasonable expectation that if we are zealous for doing good, there is no one typically, usually, who will harm us for doing that. Be zealous for doing good. But secondly, this realistic preparation, if on the one hand Peter rules pessimism out, we shouldn't accuse Peter, on the other hand, of being naive, gullible, and just being an optimist. Because with the, along with the reasonable expectation, he says that we can all have in verse 13, in verses 14 and 15, he reminds us to make sure that we're engaged with, in realistic preparation you saw that in verse 14 you're not going to be generally likely to be harmed for doing the right thing verse 13 but verse 14 but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed I would think Peter has the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 10 in the back of his mind here blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Let us not be naive. Some of his readers, as I said just a few moments ago, were already beginning to suffer for Christ. He wants us to be prepared when opposition comes. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. John Owen, the famous Puritan, once said it like this, there is more glory under the eye of God in the size of groans and mournings of poor souls filled with the love of Christ than in the thrones and diadems of all the monarchs of the earth there is more glory under the eye of God for the sighs, groans and mournings of poor souls filled with the love of Christ then John Owen went on to quote Martin Luther, I would rather fall with Christ than reign with Caesar I would rather fall with Christ and reign with Caesar that's a challenge that's a challenge because I believe that the, that the church has become sanitized it's become so, so keen to be liked so keen to be accepted that it's forgotten what it, what, it, what it means to suffer for the gospel if we never come under any question at all then honestly we're not doing it right because that was Peter's point. I would rather fall with Christ than reign with Caesar. What would you rather do? Be liked and accepted by the world or to hear the well done good and faithful servant of the Lord? Suffering with Christ is sweeter, is sweeter and is far more rewarding than riches without Him. Than riches without Him. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then he goes on to give us some concrete directions on how to respond when opposition does come. You look at verse 14 again. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy. How do you deal with a fearful heart? When you know that your neighbours, your colleagues, the children in your class are going to laugh at you because you follow Jesus. Oh, there he goes. Another fruitcake, another Bible basher, another born-againer, another evangelical. They believe things that we used to, yet they haven't been in vogue for the last five years. Imagine that. How do you quieten your fears when you say no to another drink at the office party? For the sake of your testimony, rather, rather than um, being worried about whether you're giving offence, see social, social. I would say, you know, where 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 people disregard you socially, where you lose out economically, personal slander. They're the sufferings that Peter's talking about. That his first hearers were already beginning to start to face. More is coming. How do you stand firm for Jesus when if you do so, it will cost you? And that's a good question. And verse 14 and 15 are quotations of, paraphrased quotations from Isaiah 8, 12 to 13. Peter is saying, let me show you the scriptural path to fighting fear. And paraphrasing Isaiah, Peter says, honour Christ the Lord as holy. The structure of the English translation of verse 15 can slightly obscure Peter's point. The Greek verb in verse 15 means to honor as holy, to set apart, or to sanctify something. The object of the verb is Christ the Lord. It is the lordship of Christ. It is not his holiness that is the focus of the action, which you might take the ESV to mean honor the Christ the Lord as holy but it is the honouring or the setting apart as sacred in your hearts, the Lordship of Christ. It's really important. It's an awareness that Jesus is King. I am His and He is mine. I am not my own. I'm not. I've been bought with a price. So what I say, where I go, how I live... It's not up to me. Which is a completely different message from the world, isn't it? That the main message of the world is that even in this current thing, people, you know, you know, I would argue that it doesn't really matter what you think about wearing face masks. If, you, if we're told to wear them, we probably should. It, 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 you know, and it's just a point that we're, we live in an entitled age where anything is an affront, anything is an attack on me. It's not. It really is not. But for the Christian, what I say, where I go, how I live, isn't up to me because I'm ruled by King Jesus. And I fight the fear of man in my heart by proclaiming to myself over and over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When the pressure to conform, to cave in and go with the flow presses in on you and you're tempted to blend in With worldliness all around you and holding the line is costly. In that moment, and even in these days of no singing, I would say just sing it to yourself behind your face mask. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour, my art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, it is now. Is the Lordship of King Jesus, the mastery of Jesus in my heart more precious? More precious than the pleasures and follies of sin? Is the Lordship of Jesus more important to me than the approval of my peers? The good opinion of my colleagues? Preach Christ as Lord to yourself. That's what the verse is saying. Set apart in your heart... Christ as Lord. You remember, I am His. Compromise is not an option available to me. I belong to my Saviour, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has redeemed me. But there's more to do. He wants us to prepare for suffering. But He doesn't want us to build our walls high and out of reach of anyone who might conceivably be hostile to Christ or to the gospel. If if you're reading your Bible and if you're praying for the Spirit's help, Peter doesn't expect Christians to retreat into holy huddles with no non-Christian friends. If that describes you, then again, something is wrong. So we need to get ready for what is coming. We need to fight the fear of man with the stronger, sweeter, purer fear of the Lord, setting apart Christ in our hearts as Lord. But having done that, we need to open our mouths and speak up for Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the, a reason for the hope that is in you. Notice those two words, always and anyone. What is the scope of Peter's command? Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always ready for any question from anybody. That is the duty of every single Christian. Not the people who you see coming towards you who look a bit like you. You know when if you're going out for a walk, you know, you can, say, you can oh, chat to that person, but I won't that person. That's not an option for a Christian. It's anyone. That is to say, we must know the Word of God and the system of truth that is taught in Holy Scripture. We must understand the objections that arise to it and re- seek to respond to them with honesty, faithfulness, and biblical clarity. The word defense is a word you may be familiar with. It's the word where, which we get the English word apologetic from. And it's not that every believer should have a, should be a An apologist to have a study of academic philosophical reasoning. But it does mean that every Christian is ready to explain why they believe what they believe. Be ready to preach, pray or die at a moment's notice. That's a calling that rests on us. So we should make realistic preparations that we might be ready. And thirdly, a rigorous obligation... As we do that, in the third place, there is a rigorous obligation resting on us. This is, look at verse 15 again. Always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Look who initiates this exchange that Peter is envisaging here. This is a conversation between a Christian and a non-Christian. The Christians explain in their faith, Who initiated the conversation? Always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The initiative comes from the non-Christian dialogue partner. Now, this is fascinating. This is fascinating, and I'll say right up front that this is not a monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, I don't tell anyone about Jesus because no one ever asks me. That's not what Peter means. This isn't an excuse to avoid being proactive, to avoid opening your mouth for Jesus. But he's saying something far more radical than we first see. I I was I love the study of this because it's it's far more radical than I first see. We're to live a provocative life. We're to live a life of service and kindness. We're to live a life of joy and peace in believing the gospel. We're to live a life that, that, that compels, that provokes. A life that is zealous for doing good. A life that is turning away from the world. A life that turns away from evil. A life of Christ-likeness that is so provocative that the people you know have to say, what is going on with you? It's not that we're never to strike up a conversation on our own initiative and try to share the gospel. Please do. I think Peter actually assumes we're doing that. But as you do that, our lives are to be a provocation, provocative. So it will call forth questions from people around us, amongst those whom we live and those whom we serve. And when you live this provocative life, be ready. And it's not only knowing what to say, it's, it's got everything to do with the way we say them, which is part of the obligation resting on us. Look at verses 15 and 16. Give a defense with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. It isn't that, you know, <laughs> that, you, you know that if somebody cuts you up, that you get out the car and sort of kick them in the knees, and then as you leave, you just throw a tract at them. That doesn't quite, you know, that's not quite the idea. You know, well, I satisfied my conscience. I gave them a tract, you know, after probably abusing them. No, the Christian is to be different, is to be characterized by gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So, how we speak in the moment, gentleness and respect, and the way that we've been living up until that moment, a life of godliness, so that we have a good conscience. These things are really important to being a faithful witness for Jesus. You see, knowing the arguments, I, I, know, I know I'm involved in quite a lot of debates and, and it's wonderful to be in debates with other Christians, but we, we, well, we need to be characterized by gentleness and kindness and respect. In the cut and thrust of debate, if you're a pugilist, if, you, you know, if, 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 if you're just somebody who likes a good fight, they aren't qualifications for faithful evangelism. There's probably a disqualification. A good evangelist is never obnoxious, they're provocative, but they're not offensive. The only offense we're willing to give is the offense of the cross. not our manner, not our method, not our motive. No, that is gentleness, respect and a good conscience. So we have in these verses, I believe. A reasonable expectation. We have a realistic preparation. And we have a rigorous obligation. And finally, Peter says that there is a rewarding implication. What can we hope to see if we are enabled by the grace of God to live these provocative lives that Peter is calling us to? And we share the gospel with others with kindness, gentleness and respect. That's, you know, that's a part of our character. What will happen? Now verse 16 and 17, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So there are only two possible outcomes from evangelism. There are only ever two outcomes from evangelism either people believe the gospel or they reject it you share the gospel and either they believe the gospel or they do not believe the gospel and in some ways that is what verses 16 and 17 are pushing to the fore that those who do not believe will come to understand in a very direct manner what verse 12 means when it says the face of the lord is against those who do evil Christians who suffer for doing good because the Lord wills it for a season find in their trials opportunity to make much of Jesus. An opportunity to show the world. Psalm 23 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. I have a Savior who is more than enough for every trial through which I may pass we have the opportunity to display his sufficiency in our suffering for those who do not bend the knee to Christ Peter says they will suffer for doing evil and he says they will be put to shame and if not in this life in the life to come because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil so the inference here is not really that hard to see but it's awfully sobering. Some will embrace the Gospel and come to trust in Jesus Christ who is our Saviour. And others will face the justice of Christ the Lord only as judge. This is truth, but it should make us urgent and it should make us burn with compassion for those who do not yet know Jesus as Saviour. And everyone, not only in this room, everyone in the streets outside, everyone... On the fells out there, will fall into one or other of the two categories. So let me just pause and exhort you to make sure as you hear the good news about Jesus that you respond in faith. Because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That is the gospel message. He is warning you, calling you, exhorting you, inviting you to flee the wrath that is to come and to trust in Jesus Christ the extraordinary point that peter is making in the passage for all of us who follow jesus is that we believe we see that the separation does take place between believer and unbeliever because if you don't believe that you won't be urgent about it that there's a separation that takes place between believer and unbeliever and one day that separation will be eternal And Peter is saying that God will use your witness here. Your provocative life. Your opening your mouth to give a reason for the hope that is in you. When people say, why are you able to suffer the way you are? Why do you do it like this? Why do you do it like this? Please resist the temptation to be British and say, oh. But just say, because Christ lives in me. I am his and he is mine. And I pray that he will use us to bring his eternal purposes in salvation and in judgment to pass. Destinies are being worked out in response to our witness. That's what Peter is saying. Live provocative lives. Be willing to give a defense. We should feel the weight of that. The Apostle Paul felt it. To the one, we are the aroma of life leading to life. To the other, the aroma of death leading to death. And who is sufficient for these things? I'm proclaiming Jesus and some are responding in faith and some are rejecting him. Eternal destinies have been worked out and it's an enormous pressing burden. Who is sufficient for these things? I'm not up to the task. So where do we turn? Christ himself is available to sustain and strengthen and keep you so that resting on him you can say with Paul, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything that has come in from ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter that kills, but of the Spirit who gives life. God has ordained that He will get His work done through weak, sinful, repentant, believing Christians who strive, cling to Jesus Christ and obey His commandments. God is going to do marvellous things. That's what Peter is saying. Marvellous things through our witness for his glory. So here is call. Don't flee into a Christian ghetto that we build for ourselves as a way to maintain our own sense of security. But live with an outward face and turn towards your neighbour, your colleague, your friend, your family member with good news. And it is the best news ever that Jesus saves. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. And I pray for our eternal good. Amen.